There's a curious scene that happens at the end of 2 Samuel 21 where it sounds like we have Goliath coming back upon the scene and having a whole fight and struggle and uh, giants in the land and the whole thing seems to be this strange event that has caused lots of people consternation in trying to understand exactly what's going on with giants and Goliath and things like that. Uh, And taking the paragraph out of its context can lead to certainly those kinds of uh, confusing questions about what exactly is happening. But it is the finale to a two-chapter scene that is giving us more pictures about the kingdom of God. And that's what we're going to be able to look at tonight is this message about David's kingdom as it foreshadows Christ's kingdom. And in particular with this thunderous conclusion of slaying giants. And we will talk about then what that meant at that time and what that means for us in Christ's kingdom as well. If you have your Bibles, we'll be in 2 Samuel chapter 20, because that's where all of this begins to get to this end point of slaying giants. Uh, chapter 20 opens with yet another rebellion. I think by now the people would kind of figure out that you shouldn't go up against David, but I guess not. It opens in chapter 20 with a worthless man named Sheba. And so Sheba here says, you know what? David's not our king. I'm not going to follow him and rallies up all of the northern nations of Israel against David. And so all of them desert David as verse uh, 2 depicts except for Judah, which is what we saw in chapter 19. Remember that Judah is willing to stay faithful to David while the rest of Israel seems to question David. This is already foreshadowing the arrival of Christ, how Israel is going to be skeptical of him, ultimately reject him, and only a remnant are going to truly choose him. It's already happening again here in chapter 20 with a rebellion that's rising up as as Sheba now says, let's uh, basically not allow David to be our king, and we are not going to follow him any longer. Well, David understands that this is a problem, at least with this rebellion. He understands we can't let this go on. And like Absalom's rebellion, where that just kind of seemed to brew and last and nothing happened with this one, David immediately calls for Amasa to go and take care of this rebellion and gather the armies and go. Now, an important little bit of background about Amasa. Amasa is Absalom's former commander. And remember Absalom, not a good guy, son of David, but rebelled against David. The whole thing with that that we looked at. Amasa was the commander. When David had come back into Jerusalem and was rallying all of Israel to be on his side, he told Amasa, you bring everybody to my side and you will be my commander. Now remember, Joab has been the primary commander all of this time, but David now moves that authority over to Amasa. So chapter 20 records that Amasa goes about and he's gathering the army. However, for whatever reason, verse verse, uh, 4 tells us that there's some time that passes by. For whatever reason, it takes him longer to gather the troops than what was originally set for him to do. And so David is concerned and he expresses that concern in verse 6. 
when he tells tells uh, Abishai, we, we need to go do something now. So Abishai, who's the brother of Joab, who has also been a right hand of man, a right handed man, right hand of David. How about we just say it that way? <laughs> He's been with him this whole time, and so he tells he tells Abishai, you go ahead and gather the troops, and we got to get after uh, uh, Sheba before this gets out of hand. In the process of gathering the armies together, Amasa returns and, you know, doesn't seem like much time has passed and Joab encounters him. And so Amasa comes up to Joab. You can imagine they're about ready to talk strategy and all that they're going to do. And Joab pulls him close to him and shoves a sword in him and kills him. Now, I guess we're not too surprised by Joab at this point. He seems to kill innocent people all the time. And so here's another one that he just simply kills. And there's no recorded reason. Uh, We're left to the speculation that he wants to be commander again because he seems to take over that role at this point once once uh, we see Amasa dead. But Joab does this. His body is rolled over to the side. And, and one of the men uh, of Joab's army says, follow after Joab and we're going to give David success and let's go get this Sheba and put down this rebellion. And so that's ultimately what they do. We see more bloodshed at the hands of Joab. And it's important to note these instances. This will come back upon Joab eventually, but not yet. And as they're going about trying to get the Sheba and his rebellion, he goes and he hides in one of the cities, the cities of Abel. And as he's hiding there, Joab surrounds the city and begins to lay siege to it. And one of the women of the city kind of calls out from the top of the walls and says, are you going to kill everybody in this city? Are you going to destroy part of Israel's inheritance? And Joab says, no, I just want Sheba. <laughs> you just you just give me him and everything will be just fine. And so the woman goes and tells the people of the city, they cut off Sheba's head and throw it over the wall and there you go, problem solved. One of the things that's really fascinating is you almost sound like you're the days of the judges again with the things that are going on. Innocent people are being slain. There's people on top of the wall throwing heads over the walls. It's a gruesome scene that is being depicted here. And part of the imagery that I think that you're supposed to see is we have been witnessing the arrival of the king. Remember in chapter 19 we saw that the arrival of the king meant grace to his supporters. Grace to those who confess their sins. Grace to those who have been loyal. But the arrival of the king also represents doom and judgment and destruction to those who are in rebellion. Which fits pretty well with what we were doing this morning. In talking about blessings to those who are with God and doom and judgment and wrath on those who are not. Well, that's what's being depicted here. Those who are loyal to David are reaping the benefits, but those who stand against him, they are the ones who are now receiving this judgment. And as we have seen so many times, do not go up against the Lord's anointed. This Sheba person who I love that verse one of chapter 20 says, he's a worthless man. And that is proven to be the case. He goes, up against the Lord's anointed and his doom, his demise is sealed for doing that. And so that is the first picture is ultimately that David is putting down rebellions. David
David's kingdom is being established, those who come up against him are ultimately destroyed. The the second part of that picture comes in chapter 21. But to understand what's happening here, it's a little bit curious to the literary features. Chapters 21 to 24 are out of sequence. And what I mean by that is kind of just an epilogue. It's the the end of the story. We're putting pause, we're hitting stop to the linear movement of David's life. We're kind of stepping back and saying, we've told David's story, we are done with the story of David at this point, and the final few chapters are just recording how we should measure the life of David. Here is the ending of, of his life. But even though these final chapters are kind of set aside as this epilogue or conclusion, we have to recognize that it's still connected to chapter 20. There's a reason it's set right here. And I think we can see why that is the case as we as we look at chapter 21. It tells us in the first verse of chapter 21 that during David's reign, there was a famine for, for three years. Now, that puts us... Who knows where in the timeline of the reign of David. As I said, we're, we're out of sequence now. We're looking backward during the reign of David. And for whatever reason, now suddenly we have a famine that has struck the land. And it's there for three years. Now remember, when Israel endures famine, that was supposed to tell the people of Israel something. You're out of God's favor. There's something wrong. And we're not told why, but three years go by. And now David is seeking the Lord. And it says there in verse 1 that he sought the face of the Lord. And the Lord said, it is on account of Saul and his blood-stained house. It is because he has put the Gibeonites to death. We aren't told that anywhere in the account up to this point either. We're looking backward and saying, here's some of the things that happened, not only in David's reign, but we're looking back to Saul's reign and the reign of Saul's house. And apparently, in the zeal of Saul, while he was reigning, he went about attacking the Gibeonites. You say, what's the problem with that? Well, remember... Way back there in the days of Joshua, there was this group of Gibeonites that were in the land and they were afraid of being conquered. And so they pretended to be from this really far away nation and look at our crumbled bread and look at our clothes and look how haggard we are. No, we're not in this land. We're really from far, far away. And Joshua and the people make a treaty with them that they would not harm them or else there would be harm on Israel if a hand was laid on them. And that covenant was made back in Joshua 9 verse 20. Well, Saul ignored that, goes to war apparently and attacks the Gibeonites. And because of that, God is angry and is showing that anger in a three year famine that now is levied against the the nation of Israel. And so David then goes to the Gibeonites and finds out what has happened. And ultimately, the what should we do for you? How can atonement be made? I, I was unaware that this atrocity had happened. What should be done? And the Gibeonite response is that we want seven of the sons of Saul. We want that family who did this to us to now pay the consequences and to be put to death before the Lord. 
And so David agrees to that. And as much as that might bother our sensibilities, you might note at the end of verse 14, God agrees with that because the famine is lifted and God now responds to Israel yet again. And so this was a justice act that is happening because of what Saul and his house, it says, did against the Gibeonites. What I want you to see in that whole event, though, I think is something rather striking. And that is God did not choose to overlook the injustice that had happened all the way back in Saul's reign. I mean, here we are in David's reign. He's now king wherever it is in that reign. Decades have gone by to some extent now. Quite a bit of years have taken place. And God does not forget injustices. We have a saying in our day and time, which is time heals all wounds. And that's not true with God. And I think that's important to see. You know, sometimes we say, oh, well, so much time has gone by. Time heals all wounds. Not with God. I want you to note that all of this time has passed by. Decades have passed by. And God is upset about the events that have occurred between Saul and Saul's house and those things that God is now going to do something about it so that justice can be served. And only when justice is served and atonement is made, now God will return his favor to Israel. That will be a common scene. But the second point that I want us to see, number one, was here is the picture of the arrival of the king. And when the anointed king arrives, He brings justice. And then the second part is that it has to be done and served in such a way so that he's vindicated. And so we have atonement made. We have justice given by this king. He deals with the rebels. He gives grace to the loyal. And he brings justice and atones for the wicked things and the sinful things that were done in the past. And I think it's important that we see that that is one of the the important pictures that we see of our king is a glorious picture of he is a king of justice who rules in righteousness. We will come back to that image in just a minute, but that now puts us to the the big scene that happens here. It's a it's a surprising scene. Look at verse 15 of of uh, 2 Samuel 21. Once again, there was a battle between the Philistines and Israel. David went down with his men to fight against the Philistines, and he became exhausted. And Ishbi Benob, one of the descendants of Raphah, whose bronze spearhead weighed 300 shekels and who was armed with a new sword, said he would kill David. So you can just imagine, here comes comes another giant. All right, here we go. But notice verse 17. But Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, came to David's rescue. He struck the Philistine down and killed him. And then David's men swore to him, saying, Never again will you go out to battle with us so that the lamp of Israel will not be extinguished. First picture is, here is Abishai, and he goes and kills this giant Philistine. Now, watch the very next scene, verse 18. In the course of time, there was another battle with the Philistines at Gob. And at that time, Sibachai, the Hushethite, killed Saph, one of the descendants of Rapha. So here we have another 
another giant killer. Just going to start listing how many giants we can kill. Verse 19, in another battle with the Philistines at Gob, Elhanan, the son of Jair, the Bethlehemite, killed the brother of Goliath, the Gittite, who had a spear with a shaft like the weaver's rod. And so now we have the killing of either Goliath or Goliath's brother. Now it depends on what translation you have out there. Some just say Goliath. Some say the brother of Goliath because trying to figure out what exactly is this saying. If the text is just Goliath, then that's probably just a title. As We still use Goliath today as a title to people who are really big. And so it's either that or we're talking about the brother and that's kind of where I look at it. I think that's what that most of the versions out there say is that we have the brother now of Goliath being slain as well. And then notice yet one more in verse 20, still in another battle, which took place at Gath. There was a huge man with six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot, 24 in all, and also was descended from Raphah. And when he taunted Israel, Jonathan, the son of Shimei, David's brother, killed him. These four were the descendants of Raphah and Gath, and they fell at the hands of David and his men. Like I said, two curious chapters. <laughs> you kind of look at these and go, and with the big ending of, why are we recording about giants? Why do we have quick repetition of four giants being killed why are we dealing with the philistines like this what is the big point that is being given to us and i want us to see that here you have now a picture of it's not david this time who's who's doing this now first samuel 17 i mean that's a long time ago in the history of david remember first samuel 17 is when we first are really introduced to David, he is this shepherd boy. He's not even out there in the battle where David's older brothers are fighting against the Philistines. All that you see David as is this messenger boy and runner of supplies. And he alone goes up against Goliath and strikes him down. And now in this scene, what you see is that it's not David who is the one going out to battle and having to slay all the giants. But notice it's the people of Israel. It's his loyal subjects of various, variously different people uh, like Abishai or a uh, uh, Jonathan or Elhanan, different people are listed as when this giant arrives, here is somebody who rises up and defeats them. The picture is with the king on the throne, now the subjects, the people of David, those who belong to Israel, they are rising up and defeating the giants. In fact, please consider what a contrast that is. Because when David went up against Goliath back in 1 Samuel 17, do you remember what the response of Israel was, what they were doing at that time? Fear, right? Absolute fear. Every time Goliath walked out, the armies of Israel walked back. They were terrified. And remember, David says, hey, everybody, don't be afraid. I got this. And they are mocking him. <laughs> Remember his brother, he, he just come out here to, to, to make fun of us and see what's going on here. But this time, when the giants arrive, what happens? Nobody's running away in fear. 
This time when the giants walk out, different members of David's army stand up and slay the giants. Go out there and immediately wipe them out. So what I want us to to see here as we, we pull these pictures together is ultimately what these two chapters, and in particular as it culminates on this imagery of these giants being slain, there are two pictures of hope. Two pictures of hope that are that are being given to us. Number one, the first picture of hope is ultimately that we see our Lord always deals with the enemies and he always brings justice to those who do evil. I, I want to underscore that over and over again, that what you see repeated is that there is time that goes by Before God brings justice, that is happening a lot. Nobody in the text do you see where immediately if somebody does something, well, God just comes in and takes care of that injustice immediately. Rather, time goes by. But just because time passes by does not mean that God has forgotten nor does it mean that God is not going to do something about it. This is such an important characteristic for us to understand about our God. Is sometimes as it seems to be a delay and it seems that, that there's so much time going by and we see wickedness grow and, and here we are and we are trying to do what is right and we are trying to be faithful and we seem to be oppressed and we are hurt by, by wickedness and by evil that we aren't supposed to look at the massive amount of time and think, well, God doesn't see God. God doesn't care. God's not going to do anything. God is forgotten or because so much time has gone by, God's just sweeping it under the rug. That's not how God works. And that is a picture of hope. Justice is going to be served by our God. And we see that that is really one of the things that we are waiting for. For in Christ's return, that is what's being tied here is we've witnessed David's return to Jerusalem. And what does that mean? Dealing with rebellion, dealing with injustice and putting things to right in the kingdom. That's what David is doing here. And that is foreshadowing Christ's kingdom is in his arrival. He is putting things back to right and he will rule in righteousness and justice. Remember that that is what was prophesied about Jesus. A passage we know very well, Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Listen to the nature of the kingdom though. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it, to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. One of the things that we have faith in is even when we have been wronged, sinned against, or harmed, 
And even though a significant amount of time may go by and it seems that they are getting away with it, they're not. Justice ultimately comes. God does not allow time to forget all sins. And that's a reminder for us in terms of our walk with God too. If time doesn't erase sins, then we have to take every sin that we know about and bring them to God and not think, well, just because I've done something wrong and so much time has passed by, that now makes it okay. We must be a repentant people and we must confess our sins to God. And I think it's so important to see this this first picture of hope that God is a God of justice. So when we are mistreated and when we suffer, when we have enemies, when we have problems because we're trying to do what is right, God will ultimately come and right those wrongs. And the second picture of hope. The second picture of hope is perhaps even stronger. When, when we look at what happens with, with these four men, that it wants to be noted to us here about how these four were able to take down these Philistines. It is now at this point teaching us that we are able to succeed against spiritual giants. You might remember back when we were in 1 Samuel 17, and it made the point there so often we put ourselves in the shoes of David and say, we're the David and go out there and slay your, your, your giants. That that's not the point of what's happening right there. Or we would be the Israelites who are in fear looking for the David to come and accomplish the victory for us. That's the scene of what's taking place there. Christ is the picture as pictured as David going against the enemy and being victorious. And we enjoy the spoils of the victory. But here, now David's on the throne. And the picture is not David has to go out and continue to fight against the giants, but that those who belong to him can. Now that he is on the throne, those who belong to him can. Think about how the New Testament tries to encourage us to deal with the spiritual giants and the spiritual difficulties that we often run against. I'm going to show you a text in Ephesians 6 and verse 12. It's a text that we know well, but I wonder sometimes if we don't go past it so fast that we miss exactly what this was saying about what we are supposed to do as the people of God. In Ephesians 6 and verse 12, Paul reminds us, Our struggles not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. You hear what Paul says we're up against? This is a very strong declaration where he's trying to say, you know, the battle that we are engaged in and the difficulties that we have and this conflict and hostility that we have, this isn't just about, you know, people and personalities and I just don't get along with so-and-so. That there are bigger things at play here. 
that our struggle, what we are agonizing against are, are these rulers and authorities and these dark powers of, that are standing against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. There is so much more that we are fighting against that ultimately we can't see. And that's why you have the verse right behind that, right before he says that, tells us, put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. I just want us to consider how strongly Satan is working against us and working through authorities, rulers, powers in this dark world, spiritual forces of evil. I would suppose if you if you thought about it for a minute, you might be able to say, there are days where you really just feel like that, where it just feels like you are up against the spiritual forces of darkness. We're just going up against evil. I'm trying to do right, and I am just under attack from these spiritual forces of darkness. That there is so much more at play that there are times where that's exactly what it's all about. That you and I are trying to serve God and you just have this massive force from Satan trying to get you to quit serving God, to throw temptations at you, to put you through suffering, to send you into trials. And what is all that trying to accomplish? To destroy you. Destroy your faith. And here Paul is using that and saying, you understand that You know, the devil's just not on vacation. But he is using all kinds of powers and forces in this world to try to run up against the people of God. That's why he says to us, you need the armor of God. You need protection. You need this if you're going to be able to stand because it is going to be difficult. It is going to be hard as the people of God to go up against these kinds of giants of the spiritual forces of darkness. That's what we are called to do. We are called to put on the armor of God and to take our stand against it. There are going to be all kinds of challenges in all kinds of different ways and various ways in our lives where we are going to be called upon to do what is right, say what is right, and and do the right thing, whether it be at work, whether it be at home, whether it be in whatever circle that we find ourselves in, we are going to be tested that are we going to stand up and do right and say what is right and reflect God and be the people of God or not. What I think is interesting to see is what's happening here in 2 Samuel 21 is because of David's success and because David now sits on the throne, those who belong to him, those who are part of that kingdom all say, let's go and get victory. Let's go fight the giants and we can win. 
And that is, I believe, the picture that is given to us as well. Not only can we survive the giants that we're going to face in this life, these spiritual forces that try to wreck our faith and make our lives difficult, but we see that we are able to stand against them and we are able to have victory over them because God is with us. And is this the part of hope or the part of discouragement? You decide. But isn't it interesting that the way the text records this is, and then one giant falls, and that's not the end. Then another Philistine giant arises, and somebody else is going to go out and have to fight that. And you don't go, that's not the end either. Then a third one rises up later on, and he's going to go fight against the people of God. And he loses too, and then there's a fourth one who's going to rise up, and now he's going to do it. (laughs) Here's the bad news. Once you get past one spiritual giant, you're going to have another. Another one's going to stand up and try to beat you down. You're not going to beat one and go, okay, I'm done. You know, that's great. You know, I don't need the armor of God anymore. You can set it over there on the side. Worked great. And I'm all good. I said, no more troubles, no more problems, no more spiritual difficulties. It's all going to be easy. Part of the text is showing us they're always going to be coming against us. But the hope is no matter how many stand up, you can have victory. You can succeed. You need the armor of God. You need to grab onto the fact that you have God and you hold fast to that faith and you serve your God and you do what is right in that time of crisis when it is a whole lot easier to do wrong. And you say the right thing, even though it would be a whole lot easier to lie or to say something different. Just stand up and fight those giants. God is going to be with you. And ultimately, justice will be served. God is going to deal with those enemies. Even if a lot of time passes by, God does not forget. And he will deal with those enemies. That's the picture that's coming out of here about what this kingdom of God looks like. And our need to be able to stand against the difficulties that will come our way, to be ready to fight and to take our stand because our King Jesus is with us. We face difficulties. I don't know that it's ever going to get any easier in our culture, in our society. As we move further and further away from God, the call for us to stand is only going to be increasingly difficult. But the picture that is given to us is it doesn't matter how big that giant is. God is with us. Put on the armor of God. You will be able to stand against whatever attack you face of your faith because God is with you. Let's go to God in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the strength that you give to us to be your people. Lord, we thank you for your Son who has conquered sin and death and has given us the victory so that we can have the strength to stand against Satan and all that he does. Lord, we thank you for giving us the ability to stand against everything that he throws at us, and we pray, Lord, for a greater faith to do it. Give us the strength that we need to do right when it is easier to do wrong. Give us the the boldness to say the right things and to reflect you in our words, even when it's easier to say things that are false. And God, forgive us for the times where we have taken the easy path. 
We have said things that do not represent you, and we have not lived our lives as we ought. Lord, we pray not only for forgiveness, but a strengthening for the days ahead. Lord, we know that there are more giants that are going to be before us. We know, Lord, that Satan is not done with us and that he will continue to attack us. And so because of that, God, we pray to you that you would give us greater strength, give us greater spiritual courage, give us boldness, give us the various tools that we need at the moment so that we will be faithful to you and stand firm in that faith no matter what comes in our lives. Lord, thank you for always standing with us. And thank you for the victory that was accomplished through your son because it's only because he's defeated Satan that we have any chance of, of hope of winning. And we know that's because of your son that we are able to stand with him. In Jesus' name, amen. We'll sing invitation song. We do invite you to come to Jesus. Take the opportunity to succeed in the warfare that is certainly about us, to stand faithful to God. And to come to Him with all of your heart and serve Him faithfully. Difficulties are going to arise, but God will never leave you or forsake you. Can we help you in any way? Uh, Won't you come to Him now while we stand, while we sing?